0: You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Julie Carrick-Dalton. So, Julie Carrick-Dalton is a writer who has her debut novel, Out Now, It's called Waiting for the Night Song. It is a genre-breaking work that is blending literary fiction with suspense, racial issues, and climate change. It is a story about two girls who forge a friendship in the idyllic forests of New Hampshire and bond during one magical summer. But it will flash forward 20 years later when they are reunited to deal with a dark secret of sorts that the two of them share something that they were hoping would never come up again something they were hoping they were able to cover up something that they weren't ready to face really as children and now they have to face it as adults but our main character is also an entomologist and in the midst of dealing with this crisis that has arisen from her past with her friend she's also doing a lot of research that is revealing the devastations of climate change. So on the podcast, we are talking about that balancing act of writing a great story that is very beautifully descriptive, but also weaving in these elements of suspense with these important aspects of the reaches of our changing climate, what that is doing to our various terrestrial ecosystems like forests and everywhere else. Julie Carrick Dalton is a writer, but also owns and operates an organic farm. And we do talk about that and we talk about some of the similarities between the ways in which running a farm can be very humbling in a way and help one cultivate patience and how that patience might nurture our writer side so we talk about writing we talk about farming but we talk about also this great story which is in waiting for the night song dalton's new book she holds a master's in literature and creative writing from harvard extension school she is a frequent speaker on the topic of writing fiction in the age of climate crisis, which is something we talk about here on the podcast. This is our chat. Joining us on the podcast is Julie Carrick Dalton. Hello
1: hi it's great to be here with you today
0: thank you so much for joining us waiting for the night song now this book is very interesting it is combining a story about friendship but it also a lot of suspense here there's a mystery which we're going to get to and talk about but you're also including these conversations about you know living inside of a climate crisis but also factors of these uh racial issues the immigration there's a there's a lot going on here but you weave it together so Gracefully, and this is such a page turner. So I'm very interested to talk about it. But tell me about where this story came from and why it was so important to weave all of these elements together.
1: Yeah, it didn't start out that way. So the story started out with this image of little girls in a rowboat picking blueberries from a lake. Because I have four kids and I spent a lot of summers on a lake in New Hampshire picking blueberries with them. And the story emerged because as I would pick blueberries with my kids, we'd be on these wide open swaths of land in New Hampshire and we'd just, you know, no houses or anything around, but we'd pick the berries. And at one point, my kid started asking me, are we stealing the blueberries? Whose blueberries are these? Is this our land? And so I started making up these weird rules for like, it's fine if we just take a few or don't take them all from any one bush. Or if we don't get out of the boat, we're not trespassing. And I quickly realized <laughs> this is really bad parenting, that I was justifying bad behavior. And so even though I don't think anybody would care that mm. we were picking blueberries, but so I had that idea s- sat in my head is this list of rules that um, the girls in my story swear an oath to these this made up code of, of ethics while they're stealing blueberries. Yes. And so that became the nugget that started the story about how far would someone go to, you know, to swear an oath to a false code of ethics and what would that mean if would it let you shield yourself from reporting a crime, perhaps? Um right. and so so in this book, these girls lean on this false code of ethics. They cover up a crime, which I won't tell you too much about because it's a spoiler. But so I wanted to bring my character home as an adult mm-hmm. decades later to have to face up to this crime that she covered up. And I, w- I kept thinking, what's different in the environment? Like, what is different in her home decades earlier? And um, I own a farm in New Hampshire. And in my agricultural region, our temperatures um, temperatures gone up four degrees in the past century, mm-hmm. the summer temperatures, which means we have a 22-day longer uh, growing season. So I looked, took that piece of information and I wanted to find out all the ways that slow burning rise in temperature would affect a community, It affected the agriculture. And um, so the, the climate element crept into my story. It didn't start there. It started the girls in a boat with the blueberries. But when I brought them home, I was looking at a different community. And that community included um, you know, immigrants who had moved into the, um, to the farming community. And what happens to displaced migrant labor when farmed clothes uh, are foreclosed Mm -hmm. on because of climate change? Mm -hmm. So the story started out just about these little girls, but the climate elements and the immigration elements quickly became part of the story because I don't really think you can tell a full picture of a story about climate change without looking at all the different people it's affecting.
0: I have so many questions, but (laughs) the first one being is that that sounds like kind of a, a classic case of how a novelist starts their book. One idea starts and I guess it sort of organically expands in and all these other things start start uh, to drip in. And I have to imagine as a writer, you've had dozens or if not hundreds of little sparks of ideas like that. It can be so hard to know which one is the one to chase, right?
1: Yes, this idea... Um... It, took a, it, was, it wasn't a quick chase. It took 13 years to write this book. Yeah. Um, those little kids that were in the boat with me are now the youngest one, 16 years old right now. Wow. But 13 years ago when I started the book, they were all you know, little kids in my boat. Um, so it, took, it was a, um, this idea just stuck in my head and I, I just couldn't dislodge it. And so I worked on it for a really long time as I was raising my kids. It was the same years that I was building my farm wow. too all at the same time. And um, th- during that time, other ideas came to me. I am, have a second book I'm, um, that's gonna be coming out in a year and a half that I'm finishing right now. But um, I do, I get all these ideas and they they morph. Right. You know, they, they start as one thing and they come, turn into something else. Um, right. And for me, that's part of the fun. It's kind right. the excitement of the journey.
0: Katie and Daniela are our are, are two main protagonists. Katie is sort of the lead. It is very much Daniela's story, I, I feel too. And we're talking about flashing forward and flashing back between this 20 year period when they are young children in the forest and then going on all these adventures and they have a is it is it a poachers code for their the
1: poachers code because they're poaching blueberries
0: <laughs> and they have all these rules it is it is so great and that part of the book is is very beautiful and tender too just sort of their bonding and then we are flashing 20 years later Katie's coming back dealing with this sort of mess that is going on and that's also a great way to demonstrate the effects right of climate change you might not have noticed it in 1995 but you really notice it in 2015 here in michigan our aprils are getting hotter so that was i felt like that was a good way of showing the change right
1: yeah because i think if you remove yourself from a place Mm -hmm. when you return you see the changes but if you were there the whole time um and the people in the town have been most for the most part have been there the whole time so they don't see the changes as. as dramatically as Katie does when she right. comes home. Even, you know, I tried to make the, the woods of her childhood are lush and they're yeah. green and there's mud squishing between her toes. Right. And the summer she returns, leaves are crunching under her feet and the, the um, you know, the pine needles are brittle and browning. That mm-hmm. So there's a text, the texture is different. Mm-hmm. The lake level of the water is a little lower. Mm. So there's visible changes, but it's also there's, you know, that's also Katie changed too. Mm-hmm. the character has changed when they, between the time when they left home and came home. So it's a, um, it was a good metaphor, you know, it was a good way to get into the dig into my character, but it's also very real. Yes. The, that change in temperature in New Hampshire.
0: Yeah. And I think that the ecosystem, the environment is, is a third main character with the way you write about, write about them. This has elements of suspense that some people have noted, but I feel like this is very much literary fiction because you write so beautifully about the trees or the sun or the dirt. So not a question there. I just think that it really <laughs> comes through. I mean, I know that you own and operate a farm too, but it really shines your appreciation for the I, landscapes. You know.
1: I, thank you. And that, that means a lot to me. Damn. So I mentioned I was writing the book at the same time I was building the farm. And the way that came about is our family home, um, there was a tract of woods that was on the market for timbering and development. It was right near my house and we, we have bear and deer and moose to literally walk into our yard mm-hmm. and they, they come out of this woods. Mm-hmm. And I had this like panic moment of all these bear and moose being homeless when they right. cut down all the trees and I had a freak out. And so we bought it and it was just this piece of pristine forest that was being like clear cut. And I had no business buying a farm or right. building a farm. So I don't know what I'm doing, but I wanted to learn. because so I needed to uh, think of a a business model that would allow me to protect this woods, even though I didn't know what I was doing. So we built the farm. And so I was really entrenched in learning about forestry, learning about the trees in my region, about the growing season, about the soil and the rocks in my land. So as I was writing the book, I was spending days out literally digging in the dirt and hauling huge rocks and coming home sore and dirty and then writing mm-hmm. so a lot of this the visuals that you commented on in the book are yes. what was in my in my life at the moment that i was mm-hmm. writing the book um and i think that the, the farm and the book fed each other the yes. a, a lot of agricultural research made its way into the book and forestry research also research i did for the book had an impact on choices i made when i was building the farm mm-hmm. so it was a kind of this relationship that I, I can't untangle in my mind, the book and the farm.
0: Right. And so we should say when Katie grows up, she is in forestry. What is her position? She is a... She's
1: an entomologist an studying entomologist. insects.
0: Yes, that's right. And I mean, from page one, this kind of sets up another sort of side of the drama. She is, well, there's there's fires going on and she's looking for a certain kind of beetle. And she's told that she might, might or might not actually be able to continue her research on on the land that she's currently currently traipsing through. It's federal land, it's restricted and there's this drama there. And that leads into more later. But you know, that that really just struck me as how frustrating it can be to be working in the field of climate science right now. You know, there's all these roadblocks and I think you did a good job of portraying that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that that little part of the story. So Katie is uh, trying to prove that there's an invasive beetle that's moved into New Hampshire, into the forest, killing off pine trees and setting the stage for a potential wildfire. And right. it's the same beetle that's really in California and Colorado that, that set the stage for so many of the big catastrophic fires we've been seeing. The beetle does not really exist in New Hampshire. I used some fictional license and imported it because I needed a reason for Katie to have to prove it was there. If everybody already knew it was there, that wouldn't be a lot of drama. Mm -hmm. So Katie's trying to prove it, but they cut off research to federal lands. And the reason I did that is I got really into entomology Twitter (laughs) when I was researching this book. I found all these, it's fascinating. I, I mean, I know that sounds a little bit weird, but the stuff going on in entomology Twitter is crazy and exciting. So I was following all these entomologists and they were chattering about... Um, areas being cut off to environmental research on federally held land. And I was thinking what happened, what it, what it meant is that there's some re- projects that have been researched for decades mm-hmm. and a recent administration that I will not name cut off some access to federal land. And that meant even if now they have regained access to that land, mm-hmm. there's going to be gaps in that research right. that have been going on for decades. And we can never reclaim that. And it's really, um, it's a loss. We can you know maybe guess what happened during that time mm-hmm. or extrapolate it based on data, data before and after. Mm-hmm. But there's um, a loss when we don't you know, give science the attention it deserves. Right. So a lot of the stuff that showed up about the entomology in the book was for me eavesdropping on entomologists on Twitter and following them and reading their articles and looking at them, you know, following their webinars. And right. um, my next book is about bees. So I still got the um, the bug. Sorry, pun intended there. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> well, and then just as a fiction writer, you certainly found a way to put your, your main character, Katie, into a lot to deal with there is that that side that we just talked about you know um working through this frustration of being on feral land her friend is in trouble there is uh, another sort of third friend that we haven't mentioned who comes back into her life she's got a lot on her plate
1: (laughs) yeah you know just throw it all at the main character right um yeah in the in the first chapter of the book uh, which this isn't giving away too many spoilers because it comes right at you but she's trying to prove the Beatle exists. She's trying to decide, am I going to go rogue and trespass and, you know, prove I'm right and be the hero and maybe head off fires or am I going to, you know, she's making a really dangerous decision. She could get arrested. She could lose her job, ruin her career, but she also isn't the kind of person to sit on the sidelines and just follow the rules. Mm -hmm. And so we meet her at that moment in in her career, but at the same moment, she gets a text from that childhood friend, Daniela, Mm -hmm. and she has to then go home and face up to this, you know, bad decision that she and Daniela made when they were kids. So the the worst moment from her past collides with the hardest moment of her adult life and her career at the same time. So she's yeah, she has it coming at her from all directions, and those two storylines converge. Oh yeah, the um the climate angle and the mystery from the childhood they all kind of meld into one big mystery.
0: That uh, that idea of the bill is coming due for for Katie to sort of face up to this matches with humanity and the bill is coming due for us with our ignoring climate science climate change you know so in that same way something that we may put on the back burner and hope it wouldn't be a problem 40 years ago is becoming a problem and that was something i wanted to talk to you more about is this idea of being a fiction writer in a time of climate crisis. I remember that, you know, once the pandemic hit, Stephen King did an interview the same week because he had a book coming out and he was like, this is going to change how we write fiction. I'm going to write characters who are wearing masks now. And I was like, oh, okay, Stephen. But obviously that was something that was very much in front of our face. Climate change is never really staying at the forefront of our conversations like this and it's it's in this book a lot and in fact there's there's one moment where Katie's giving a presentation and she's almost kind of frustrated she's just like look out the window and it's a great scene but talk about being a novelist and writing specifically in an age of climate crisis.
1: Yes. Well, thank you for asking that. Um, climate fiction yes. is my favorite thing to talk about. I could talk your ear off. I'll try to control myself. <laughs> but you know, I, I define climate fiction as you know fiction that engages climate science in a meaningful way. And it, I think a lot of people think of it in a bucket with climate, with science fiction, like it has to be dystopian or futuristic or apocalyptic. Um, and there is a lot of that. Some really brilliant work coming out in yeah. you know the, the dystopian, post-apocalyptic areas. Like Kim Stanley book,
0: Robinson, maybe.
1: Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. And Amitav Ghosh right. and um, and NK Jemison, and, and there's just like some beautiful work coming out. Yeah. But there's also like my book is a contemporary novel. You know, I would just call it. A, you can call it suspense, thriller, literary. There's a lot of. Places you could put it on a shelf, but it's um, based on real science that's happening right now, and it's slow burning. It's not a disaster story. This is not one of the things that really intrigued me when I was developing the story. Was nobody thinks of New Hampshire as the epicenter of climate change? Right. Nobody's like, oh, New Hampshire is burning, or New Hampshire is going to flood. Um, the waters are not rising in New Hampshire. But what I wanted to show was this insular town in the mountains of New Hampshire. Isn't untouched, and you know we have this slow burning rise in temperature, which is a real number. This rise in temperature, um but I also tried to draw these almost invisible lines to other parts of the world. Like the bird in the title of my book, the "Waiting for the Night Song," mm-hmm. refers to this little tiny songbird called a Bicknell's Thrush, mm-hmm. which is a real bird that's endangered in New Hampshire, and it's this teeny little gray bird that will fit in the palm of your hand that nobody would notice if it's gone like who's going to notice It's one of many tiny birds but it leaves a hole in the ecosystem and so i traced why it's endangered and i found out that it's because it migrates every um, winter to the caribbean and its um, habitat in the caribbean is being destroyed by hurricanes and deforestation so every year it's coming back to new hampshire in smaller numbers and dealing with the change in temperature in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So I would like, I connect us to the Caribbean. And in a lot of ways, I connect us to military and economic intervention in Central America in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, about, and that leads to you know, issues of climate migration and how we respond to it. So I wanted to kind of explore this idea of, you know, nowhere is, um, is are we safe from climate change. And I also, something else that I'm seeing emerging more in literature is, I feel like in the United States in general, not everybody, but in general, we have this really myopic view of climate change, that it's this future event. It's this looming thing to prepare for in the future. But um, if you look around the world and in a lot of places in our country, the climate apocalypse is here. It's already showing up and people are already living through it. And so to say it's coming is kind of a position of privilege, you know, to say, oh, it's not affecting me today but it is affecting other people. And in most cases, not always, but it tends to be black, brown, indigenous, poor communities that are feeling it first and worst. And so if you're not feeling it, yet yeah, in, in, in your day-to-day le- life, it's maybe a good idea to take a step back and say like, why am I not feeling and, and who is? And in what way am I connected to the problem? Mm-hmm. And that's what I kind of hope the book does. I don't want it to be a didactic book. I don't intend, I want it to be a story that people enjoy, but I also hope maybe that idea lingers that we're all responsible oh. um, for this whole world because we're all connected in a lot of ways. So that that was part of the, um, you know, what was in my mind the whole time I was writing it.
0: Oh yeah. and so. Obviously, a lot of that is covered. But Julie, you also tell a great story. There's (laughs) a good story in here. And, you know, there was a there was a day where I read 80 pages in one sitting because it was just, you know, it was page turning drama for for the two friends involved. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about maybe what what the most challenging aspect of this book was, I was going to presume that it might have been balancing uh, all those elements that you wanted to include, but also getting the, the narrative in there too, because I'm sure there's a lot of writers out there who, who want to have a lot in their book. But um, talk about that that balancing act for you
1: yeah so it was a struggle um i had so much research that you know the forestry and entomology research that i i thought all of it was like so utterly fascinating that everybody wanted to read every detail about this (laughs) beetle but i mean people don't you know so i had to control myself a little bit about how much actual science i included in the book because you're right it's always about the story Mm -hmm. and um it is it's a story about a fierce friendship between katie and daniela they go through you know we start out with this idyllic childhood friendship they you know, growing up, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, we woke up in the morning in the summer, we went outside, played with our friends, ran wild in the woods and came home for dinner. Yeah. And that's how Katie and Daniela are this summer that of this adventure summer. And it's charming and endearing. And you, you know, I want you to love these little girls, but then this traumatic thing happens. And it's like this big loss of innocence. Mm-hmm. Um. So I wanted that to be the central thing, like the thing that's moving you through the story is that you care about Katie and Daniela. Mm-hmm. And when they have a, you know, they're a strange, for many years in this book. And when they come back together as adults, I want you to be wanting them To reconnect, and I want the reader to um, feel the long ago bonds that are tying them together, even even though they've been estranged for a long time. Um, Because I think that that is, you know, people connect to that. There is a a reviewer, or I guess maybe it was a book blogger, wrote a review Mm -hmm. of my book, and they started. You can always tell if a review is going to go in one direction or the other from the beginning, and it started out. I'm not interested in climate change. I don't pay attention to the news, and I do not like books about politics. So I'm bracing myself, like uh uh-oh. And she said, but. I really loved your characters. I loved the story, and I cared about them, and I cared what happened to them. And by the end of the book, I found myself caring about climate change. And now I think about it differently. So, it's, so it's, I won. It's like You're if right. nothing else good comes of this book, I won. Yeah. Um. So I feel like that the story is so central, and it has to always be first. You yes. have to love the characters. You have to be compelled by the plot, mm-hmm. and then the climate is the background um, right. of the story.
0: Right. I think that what you do is you you meet the reader on an emotional level because the the forest is portrayed as a sanctuary, a magic place uh, for both of the characters. And then, you know, 20 years later, we see that magic sanctuary is, is being depleted. So that on a gut level, every, everyone's going to relate to that. Uh, and the, other, the last thing I wanted to talk about was something that you do, especially in the first portion of this book, is uh, these two girls meet a third character, and the way they start interacting with this third character is they, Katie especially, starts leaving books for this character. Uh, and we go down the line, and you have a great, maybe purposeful homage to so many great books that are classic coming-of-age stories, Tuck Everlasting, The Outsiders. Uh, I don't know, it seemed like you were really enjoying that part as the writer putting that into your book.
1: Very much so. Yeah. So in fact this um the childhood timeline takes place over just one summer, but in my first draft it was three summers. Okay. And I had 40 books in there. <laughs> I had to pick what I decided to consolidate under one summer. I had yeah. to trim the book list. Katie so becomes girl, a
0: librarian almost. Yeah,
1: exactly. You know? I know. Um, and so they were my books. These right. are the books that I fell in love with that shaped me as a young kid. The ones I hid under the covers with. And, you know, Judy Bloom and mm-hmm. you know, the Outsiders and the Swiss Family Robinson was one of my favorites. So I wanted my characters to, for Katie particularly to love these books. These are the books that built her and formed her. And, and she, in turn, wanted to share them with this other, this third person that they meet. They, um, I won't tell you too much about them, but sure. they, they call him the summer kid when they first encounter him. So they deliver books to this boy. And um, they. it ends up being a vehicle for communication between these, um, these kids that don't really know each other. But it's all part of the adventure of that summer. yeah. And the, the fun sto- part of this story is um, he's a real person. <laughs> so um, <laughs> though he doesn't end in the same way, but it does in my book just to let you know that part. <laughs> um, so this character in in my real life, I do a lot of kayaking um, on a lake in New Hampshire and um, I go out uh, in the mornings a lot. And I, for years, I would paddle by this pier and there's this kid sitting on his pier alone all the time Mm -hmm. he was reading a book he was plucking on an out of tune guitar he was fishing and he was always there and year after year it's over like a period it's been 15 18 years and he's grown up and he has a i don't know if he has a girlfriend or just friends but i see him now as an adult back there at his family's summer place and he inspired a, a character in my mind like who is this kid like why is he always alone on a pier so I invented this backstory for him. And um, this, this summer, now that my book is out, this summer I am going to take my book and drop it on his pier with a note and let him oh. and leave it for him because that's what Katie would have done. Um, <laughs> so I'm pretty excited to do that.
0: I mean, the appreciation for all that literature in your youth is clearly a good indicator as to why you wanted to become a writer. I I imagine.
1: Yes, I was always writing. I used to write um, fan fiction when I was a kid, before fan fiction Mm -hmm. was cool. I used to write scripts for TV shows like Mork and Mindy and Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman and make my friends act them out. So I've always been writing something um, for as long as I can remember.
0: I think it's also, and I'll let you go after this, but I think it's also interesting that you work on a farm and you are a writer now, both of those tasks, those both, enterprises require, if nothing else, hard work, yes, but patience too, right? (laughs) something you had to develop, right?
1: I'm, not, I'm still working on that part. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody I know would call me patient. Right. Um, but I do have a commitment. Yeah. Um, and so I get frustrated when things aren't going the way I want. And especially with, you know, with with the writing, I can craft things and polish things and, you know, turn it over and look at it from different angles and cut things. But with the farm, mm-hmm. I'm at the mercy of a lot of forces I can't control. So that's been a real exercise for me yeah. because I can't edit nature. Yeah, <laughs> I can't revise the weather like I can with my book. So I feel like I have more control in the book. Um, But I honestly feel like the more time I spend in nature working on my book, I mean, I'm sorry, working on my farm, the better my writing is. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if I'm not necessarily writing about nature, I feel like it's just like my um, source of recharging. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah, so the farm and the book are uh, just two sides of a coin kind of to my personality, I think.
0: Yes. Well, Julie Carrick-Dalton, thank you so much for joining us.
1: This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for reading it and for inviting me on today. This has been oh, a great conversation. Of course.
0: Waiting for the night song. Obviously, we'll talk about important issues, but it is not didactic, as she said. A great story is in here, and it's going to get you thinking. And I think it's going to resonate emotionally with a lot of you and hopefully get us all talking about climate change. But in the end, a great story. So I really enjoyed it. And uh, congrats on getting the new book together. Looking forward to that, too. We should have you back on the podcast then.
1: I look forward to it. Thank you.
0: And that was julie carrick dalton talking about waiting for the night song a moving and timely debut which is a love song to the natural beauty around us a call to fight for what we believe in and a reminder that the truth will always rise and we'll have more information about julie carrick dalton in her new book in our show notes and that is our show it's a little too quiet the ferndale library podcast brought to you by the friends of the ferndale library My name is Jeff Milo, and the music that brings you in and out of this podcast is by local musician Chad Stocker. If you enjoyed this chat, please share it to social media or tell a friend. If you've been listening to us already, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening.